You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Well, good morning, Harvest Church family and all those joining us online. I trust you're enjoying your weekend this weekend and you're ready to engage in the Word of God. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31 is where we're going to be today. An important uh, topic as you've just heard David read this text. Obviously, this whole uh, reality of this uh, text revolves around the idea of salvation. uh, But within it, we obviously address the uncomfortable and awkward uh, topic of money. The truth is, especially in North America, that making money our God instead of allowing Jesus to be our God is one of the constant battles that we face. And as we learn today, it's a crucial topic because the love of money can actually dull our hearts to the reality of Jesus Christ. And so right off the bat, Jesus just gets right into this and helps us understand who he is, but also uh, who he is in relation to uh, sometimes our greatest possession, which is our money. Now, so important is the topic of money in the Bible that nearly half of Jesus' parables uh, are revolving around our money and possessions. In fact, one in seven verses in the New Testament talks about our money and possessions. Uh, Over 500 verses on prayer in the Bible, almost 500 verses on faith, and yet 2,000 verses on money and possessions. In fact, 15% of all that Jesus taught revolves around this single topic. And so you ask, so what gives? Why does Jesus talk so much about money? Is he one of these televangelists that just wants into our hearts so we can get into our pockets? That is absolutely not the case. In fact, Jesus Christ is the CEO, the founder and owner and CEO of the World Bank. He doesn't need our money. In fact, neither does our church because we trust in Jesus who is the source of all money. But why does Jesus teach us this then? He teaches us this because ultimately, ultimately money is one of those commodities that seems to ensnare the human heart and lead to a skewed view of God and life. Um, Bottom line is there's a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. And so Jesus today, because he loves us, because he has the best for our lives in his mind and heart, warns us and shows us the full reality of where we can get to if money takes over and becomes our greatest treasure instead of Jesus Christ. Ultimately this, Jesus desires to be our greatest treasure and we see that so clearly in the text. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. I'm just gonna stop and pray right now because I know already you're kind of wondering, where is this going? Where is this gonna, what's this gonna do to my heart? Or where is this gonna, this is gonna be uncomfortable? Let me tell you this, I just wanna stop and pray and ask that God would apply this message to our lives in a way that we can see his glory, but also understand the full reality of why he's blessed us here in Canada with so much money and possessions. Let me pray, and let's get into the text. Father, I thank you today for the the reality of your word. Father, I thank you for the freedom that we have in our country to be able to come into our homes and to worship you freely with voices loud. I thank you for the freedom we have to open up your word and study the great truths you've shown us about about who you are, about who we are, and about how we can live our lives. Father, this morning as we understand your perspective of money, God, I pray you'd open our minds, open our hearts. Would you not let this go anywhere it shouldn't, but instead would you allow this text to drive us to Jesus Christ in a full abandon and a full surrender with all of our lives. 
including the resources you've blessed us with. Oh, help us, God, I pray. Oh, show us Jesus. Oh, move in our lives for the glory of our King. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Mark uh, chapter 10, verses 17 to 31. Here's what I want to say right off the bat. Uh, Jesus demands top priority in our hearts, in your heart and my heart. Jesus demands top priority in our hearts. Let me unpack for you what David just finished reading for us. Here's the scene. Jesus is getting ready to head out of town. And he's got all his disciples, all his entourage ready. He's got the donkeys saddled up. He's probably got some snacks in tow. And they're probably in a little huddle saying a final prayer like we do before vacation, ready to go. And out of the blue, this random guy comes running down the street. Jesus, Jesus, wait. We know from Mark, or sort of Matthew chapter 19 that he's a, a rich young man. He's a ruler in the synagogue, which means he has influence and affluence. And so it's kind of an odd scene, this little group of Jesus and his followers and this wealthy man, kind of like a lawyer running down the street after, after Jesus. And yet when he gets to Jesus, you know, he's got this urgency to him. I'm sure Jesus is thinking like, what's going on? Is somebody died? Does somebody need healing? Is there's an urgent matter? And instead though, we see what happens here. This man falls at the feet of Jesus, gets in his beautiful robe, all dirty, not caring about that. Shows how much he respects Jesus and, and the earnestness and the humility this man before uh, Jesus, this young ruler had before the young teacher. And notice, they're probably on the same plane in some ways in this guy's eyes. Young ruler, young teacher, not realizing he's the king of the universe, but there's a relation happening here. And then he calls out, see it here in the text, he calls out to him and he says, yeah, good teacher. See that? He says, good teacher. You might not think anything about that, but that's actually a significant thing. In this day, good only related to God. Our day, everything's good, isn't it? Uh, good day, good night, good snack, good grief. Like, everything's good. In Jesus' day, there was one good, and it was God. Capital G, good God. And so you're already thinking, like, does this guy get it? He's heard Jesus teaching. He's in the synagogue. Maybe he understands already that Jesus is the supreme king. Or maybe he's just saying, like, he's... Good, but he yet doesn't understand that he is the greatest. Either way, he's saying something with that. Good teacher. And then he asks this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What a question, isn't it? It's the question of the ages. And notice, Jesus is getting ready to leave. And he asks one of the biggest questions that almost that every person in human history has wondered. So what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's like when we put our kids to bed. I've done this before with my son, Zach, when he was young. And, and you're just trying to get them to bed and get off. And he's like, Dad, I got a question. How is God eternal? <laughs> you think I can answer that in two seconds? And this is the question that comes from this man. Like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Think about this. He is asking this. Can I live forever? How do I inherit a higher life, a higher quality of life. Maybe he's already seeing that his money and his power and his influence just aren't cutting it. What must I do? Notice he's using the word do. Like, how can I attain this? How good do I have to be? Here's the way that every religion in the world, other than Christianity, sees salvation. I have to be, I have to be good as long as my great cosmic scale, as long as my good outweighs my bad, I'm in. Or, or as long as my, I'm, I'm better than half the other people in the world, then I must be okay in God's eyes. And so he's really asking, like, like, how good do I have to be? Like, how good is good enough? Jesus is not super flattered with this. He's not like, oh, man, like, you just call me good. Be blessed, my son. No, look what Jesus' response is. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? 
No one is good except for God. Here's Jesus' point. Like, like, don't just be throwing this term around. There's one person that's good. It's God. And unless anyone can reach his standards, you can't be using the word good. God is good. You clearly are not. Be aware of this. You know no one is good except God alone. How do I inherit eternal life? He basically says to him, then you be as good as God. You know the commandments, he said. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. Notice he goes back to the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20, but these aren't ten of them, these are only six of them. So he skips the first four, which all deal with one's relationship with God. You think you're good? Well, these four things in your relationship with God show that you're good. Here's the lesser six. These are how we are to relate to each other according to God's commands. And so he's probably setting this guy up to help him realize that you're not quite as good as you think you are, even in relation to the lesser of the six Ten Commandments, which relate to how you relate to others. But Jesus is a little bit, well, Jesus is surprised. We're surprised because look at the guy's response. He's like, you know the commandments, do not murder. This guy's like, yep, got that one covered. Do not commit adultery, check. Do not steal, of course not. Do not bear false witness, never, Jesus. Do not defraud, are you kidding me? Would never think of that. Honor your father and mother, like, check, done all these things. Young teacher says to him this, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. All these, uh, since my bar mitzvah, I've been doing all of these things perfectly. You and I are like, really? This guy is like way over the top, arrogant. He's way too self-righteous because nobody has done all of these things perfectly. Not a chance. A deceived little man this rich young ruler is. Jesus, though, doesn't take this uh, opportunity to like, come on, man, you're lying. You just broke a commandment right there. He instead, look what he does. And he said to him, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. And Jesus said, looking at him, loved him. Notice Jesus loved him. Like he's trying to show him how much he falls short of the glory of God. This guy thinks he's got it all together. And Jesus has love and his compassion on this earnest, he's earnest, all right, zealous man who's trying to do the best he can to earn salvation. Jesus loves him. For those of you who think that somehow Jesus only loves the believers and not the unbelievers, here's a case to show you that Jesus loves Jesus' love and compassion even reaches to the unbeliever who doesn't get it. So Jesus tenderly, he doesn't power over him or you moron, clearly don't get it. He doesn't call him out. He tenderly says to him, think of this, you lack one thing. Jesus is saying this to the guy who's probably never lacked anything and not been in need of anything his whole life. He's like, you think you have everything, but get this, you lack. You're missing one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. So this facade of spirituality, this is trying hard, A plus, uh, but you're missing out one key ingredient. He takes them here to the first of the 10 commandments and he says this, you shall not have any other gods before me. He's like, so you have everything together, but your money is taking the place of God. And if you get the first one wrong, none of the others really matter. The first of the Ten Commandments, have no other God before me, is actually the foundation of our Christian faith and our foundation of our salvation. Like a building begins with a foundation, so our life in Christ begins with the first of the Ten Commandments. And if we don't have that one right, nothing else matters. And so he says to him, he says this, he says, go and 
sell all that you have and give it to the poor. This is a tough pill to swallow. Why is he telling this? Because it's going to show Jesus that he values Jesus more than his possessions. It's actually going to fulfill the second of the greatest commandments that Jesus gave us in the New Testament and actually show Jesus he actually loves others more than himself at the same time. Do this and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come after me. In other words, you give up all that in exchange for me, Jesus says. Then you're going to start to get a little bit of what it looks like to actually be a lover of Jesus and a disciple of the living God. Of course, verse 22, this man is disheartened and sorrowful because his possessions were great, it says. Notice people usually came to Jesus sad and left happy. This man came to Jesus happy and left sad. He was greatly disheartened and sorrowful and distressed. Just couldn't do it. Possessions meant so much to him and Millionaire Boys Club and probably Vocation at Club Med and owning a mansion and having all the people follow him with his wealth and his prestige. And he's looking at it going, but I love this life too much. And there's a lot at stake here. Think of his identity, the respect and the, the prestige and privilege. Bottom line is this, as some of us maybe have become accustomed to, we grip our money so tightly that we can't possibly ever grip the Savior. And he wasn't even going to let Jesus pry his grubby little hands off his cash. Interesting text, isn't it? Let's just stop and consider for a minute here what in the world is going on. What's going on? Well, we see all kinds of things just in these first few verses. We see, we see this first and foremost, that salvation is not a matter of what I can do, but it's a matter of whom I bow before. Salvation is not a matter of doing, it's a matter of bowing, it's a matter of elevating the status of Jesus in our hearts. Here's what the Ten Commandments do. Some of us think that religiously we have to follow these things and somehow that's going to make us right with God. Here's what the Ten Commandments do. Yes, they show us the character of God, they show us the heart of God, they show us the ways of God, but they also show us that there's no possible way on God's green earth that we can ever fulfill all the Ten Commandments perfectly, revealing to us that we desperately, desperately need a savior and the first commandment is the key to open up all the others have no other gods before me the, the, the reality is Jesus wants sole possession of our hearts sole possession of our lives and that's the first step to becoming saved we see the glory of Jesus Christ we know that he came to, from heaven to earth to die on the cross for our sins that he paid the price for us that he, he bought us back with his blood from the grip of Satan and now he demands our all back. And the first step to that is to get humble before him and say, God, I will have no other gods before you. I repent of my sin. By faith I choose you. And by faith I put you in the place of prominence in my heart. Here's the rich young man's problem. His idol of money and possessions just wouldn't allow him to truly get on his face and bow before the king. So many of us have willing hearts. Yeah, I want to follow Jesus. Yeah, I want the eternal life. I want all the blessings. But when it comes to our idols, man, our idols control us and they, they grip us and, and we can't seem to shake them. And, and this is what Jesus is calling the rich young ruler to, to, to break down the idols in his heart. And I don't think we're much different than the rich young ruler. In our day and age, we have idols. 
So many people I've talked to over the past 45 years would say that they mentally ascend to the truth of Jesus. Verbally, they can mention his name, but when it comes to idols, I'm not willing to give that up in exchange for Jesus. What are the idols of our day? Well, there's self, for sure. The idol of self is prevalent today, 2020. No matter where you are, the, the um, humanism that's taken over us, the self-exaltation, the self-awareness, the self-enlightenment. Some of us can't get past ourselves to truly get into Jesus. What about this one in our day, sex? Man, it's everywhere. It seems that our own pleasures and our own ecstasy and our own bodies, our own desires to do whatever we want seem to, uh, I won't give that up for Jesus. Those are two of the prominent ones. Here's a third prominent one in our culture. I'm not saying these are on any different levels. These are the top three, I think. The third one's our silver or our money. Think about it. How closely your heart becomes attached to your money. Well, obviously it does. Money makes the world go round. We need it to live. We believe it's the answer to all of our problems. We buy into this mirage that the world sells us, that power and prestige and comfort come from money. And so what happens inevitably is we put all of our, all of our hope and all of our confidence in, in our money instead of into Jesus Christ. In fact, some of the Jews even believe salvation could be purchased by their alms or their givings. The more sacrifices, the more offerings, the higher place in heaven. Can I tell you this in three words? So not true. Salvation is not a get it done faith. It's not a buy my way into heaven. It's, it's accept by faith what Jesus has done for me and give him the authority to be king of our lives and every aspect of our beings, including our money and our possessions. Here's what salvation truly is, is pursuing Jesus as my greatest treasure. The rich young man, couldn't get past this reality that, that his God and his identity were his money. Here's the truth for him. His bank statements and his business plans took center stage in his life. And Jesus is telling him, rich young ruler, I want to be center stage of your life. I've bought you with my life. I'm going to buy you with my life. For us, I bought you with my life and now I want your life back. And honestly, the Bible is so clear on, on our idols, including our idols of silver, or idols of money. And it tells us that the only way for us to truly know eternal life is to make sure God is number one in our lives above all else. You see this throughout the whole New Testament. Matthew 6 says this, no one can serve two masters. Or there is going to hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot you cannot serve both God and money. It's like having two lovers. <laughs> Inevitably, you're going to love one over the other. One's going to have greater affection, greater attention to one over the other. God says the same with, with, with me and money. And instead of us gravitating to where our money is, what he wants us to do is be like the, the merchant in, in Matthew chapter 13 that sold everything he had. He found a pearl of wealth in the field. He went and sold everything he had just so he could get his hands on the pearl because he knew if he had the pearl, he had it all. I know I can preach this to you. I know you can hear this, but let me ask you this. Is this your reality today? You don't have to be rich to desire money. You could be poor and desire money. It's my hope, it's my comfort, it's my God. And if only I can have, then I'll be happy. 
Or is Jesus truly your treasure? Brothers and sisters, lay down the idol of money and possessions. I have to too. I'm just like a little kid holding my nickel. God sometimes has to like pry my little fingers off. Let him pry it off and and let him be our everything. Let him be our treasure. When you found Jesus, you found the greatest treasure the world could ever offer. It's not in the form of a bill. It's not in the form of a face on the bill. It's in the face of the Son of God who gave everything for you on the cross. Amazing. Stop and consider now, where is my heart really? What is my treasure? What am I pursuing? Here's a second point, which is so clear in the text. It's important to think about these things. It's important to really contemplate in your heart the realities of where your heart is because it says here in the text, the presence of money can actually lead to the absence of God. The presence of money can actually lead to the absence of God in our lives. I'm not making this up. Look what it says in verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples this, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, in other words, the presence of money can lead to an absence of God. Disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. He says it twice. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. In other words, they were like, what did I just hear? They said to him, then who can then be saved? Jesus looked at them and said this, with man it is impossible, but with God, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Disciples gather around, teaching time. Notice he calls them children. Simple of faith. Aren't we all like children? We need to be called children sometimes, especially their heavenly father. We know we should get it, but we just don't get it. We have to learn the same lessons over and over and over again. He's gathering around like, this is another one you have to learn over again today. It's harder for a rich man to enter in the kingdom of God than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. What's he saying with this text? Camel is obviously the largest animal in Palestine. You ever seen the eye of a needle? I'm honest, I'm 45, and I can't even see the eye of a needle with my glasses on anymore. You're looking at it, you're trying to get in the right spot. Like, like camel, eye of a needle. Is he saying it's impossible if you have money to enter the kingdom of God? It seems that's what he's saying. Some people have tried to soften this text over the last number of years and said, well, actually, it's not, that's what it doesn't mean. It actually means that there's these little gates, these little gates within the gates in Jerusalem, and, you know, the camel could get through if he got on his knees and you pushed him hard and pulled him hard enough and could get through. So it's really not saying it's impossible. Actually, that, that theory didn't come into about the ninth century. Um, so it's probably not that one. Or just hyperbolic language like we've seen before. You know, the passage I preached a few weeks ago. You know, cut off your hand and sever your foot and gouge out your eye. Just making a point. Probably that's it. Although later on he clarifies, is he talking about impossible or is he talking about not, maybe a little more difficult. But he says what is impossible with man is possible only with God. So what he's saying here is simply this. If our money overtakes and our possessions and all the trivial materialism of this world overtakes our lives, it will be, it's in the text, twice, impossible, three times actually, to enter into the kingdom of God. Difficult, impossible, impossible. Here's the reality. Money can have such a powerful 
hold on the human heart that it can squeeze the life right out of you. Like a boa constrictor. It can just wrap itself around you and just squeeze the life right out of you. Disciples, like, are you kidding me? And who they can be saved? It's impossible. Jesus like, no, it's not. Not with God. Stark warning, isn't it? Again, first things first. What's he talking about here? He's talking about salvation in this text for sure. What he's reminding us is only God can make salvation possible in our lives. Only God can, can wrap up the gift of Jesus in the form of, a, a form of human flesh, his very own son on a cross, and present it to us as, as the, the only gift that we have to open to actually get into the kingdom of heaven. We open it through faith and repentance. And only God can present Jesus. Only, only God in our hearts can work into our hearts to, to get us to a place where we see the beauty of Jesus and hear the message and understand our hearts and actually surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to the, to the full reality of what God has done for us through his son. In fact, any spiritual credentials we try to bring to the table, Philippians 3 reminds us, when Paul says, I'm a superstar of, of religiosity, that doesn't matter. It's only by the supernatural power and grace of God that he can make a dead heart beat again, and that comes through his son. Trying to find our own way to God, whether it's through Money or through actions is simply a waste of time. It's as preposterous, and trying to buy a way to have it, it's as preposterous as a camel going through the eye of a needle. Only God can make human hearts love him and desire him more than anything, including more than our money. Only God can make salvation possible. Salvation is a gift from the Lord to rearrange our whole landscape and then see him as the most glorious man on the planet, to take over the reality of our hearts and our minds and our souls and our whole beings. Second truth of this we have to be aware of is this, beware the money trap. Can't get through this text without clearly coming to the reality of beware the money trap. Here's what I mean by money trap. Satan loves to set traps for us along the journey of life to snag us and snare us from the path towards Jesus. If any of you ever had a mouse in your garage or your attic or your house, you know how to get rid of a mouse, right? You set the trap. You put peanut butter in there. You put some cheese in there, cheese whiz or nuts. And, and inevitably, the mouse can't deny that smell, right? And got him. Well, here's what Satan does for us. He doesn't put peanut butter or cheese or cheese whiz or nuts in a trap. He puts... Money in our trap, that's our greatest, one of our greatest desires that lure us in. In the trap Satan puts for us, he puts, he puts things like dollar bills and vacation ads and Freedom 55 brochures and lottery tickets. And he lures us into thinking that if we just have money, we're going to have it all. The rich can buy into this, the Poor can buy into this. Doesn't matter your background or your upbringing, your nationality, we all seem to be susceptible to the temptation to make money or everything. I want to clarify with this money's not the root of all evil, as many people have said to me over times, over the times. You were sitting in our dentist chair a few years ago, and the new hygienist came and asked me what I did. She's like, Oh yeah, money, it's the root of all evil. I said, actually it's not. She's like, it's not? And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah. Trying to talk to your dentist with your mouth open, right? Pride's the root of all evil, but the love of money is where we get the snag, right? 
We need money. We need money to survive and live. It's the love of money that snags us. Listen to what it says in 1 Timothy 6.10. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money can be the great detractor in seeing God and living for him. You don't have to have a lot of it for actually it to engross your soul. Think of, think of, think of nickels. You used to have pennies, we have nickels. Think of a nickel. And you put that nickel in the right spot. If you're so focused on money, you can put that nickel right in the right spot in both of your eyes. Just two nickels is all it takes. And you can be blinded to the full glory of Jesus. You can be, you can be blinded to walking in God's ways. And all it takes is a heart that longs for two nickels more than longs for Jesus Christ. Our culture is money obsessed. It's money dominated. You even see it in Christians who think that, man, if I come to Jesus, he's going to bless me. And so I come to Jesus really only for me so I can get the blessing of Jesus, which is really not what he promised at all. Do you realize in Canada we battle with this because we live in uh, apparently the third highest per capita income since 2016 in the world? In fact, Canada is right up there in the G7 uh, series, the economic growth. You know, G7, the top seven countries of economic growth in the world. Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, UK, and USA. Canada is right in the top of economic growth in the world. In fact, of the G7 countries, we control 58% of the global net wealth, whatever that number is today. One stat said in the 300 trillions. It's amazing. We always look at this and we're like, well, that's not me. That's the lifestyle of the rich and famous. Do you realize that it's like 32,400 US dollars or 44,000 Canadian, depending on the day of money conversion? 44,000 Canadian income would qualify you and I to be in the top 1% of wealthy in the world. Tells you a lot about where, where the rest of the world is, right? No, I'm just average. Actually, I'm at the poverty line. We're not at the poverty line. Maybe it's our obsession with money that makes us think we're there. In fact, it takes a net worth of $750,000 approximately to actually be in the top 1% of wealthy in the world because the bottom half of the, of the scale in the world's economy is so poor. True poverty, case in point in India, the typical adult claims just $7,000 in assets. Well, the average American, African citizen sorry, holds about $4,100 in total wealth. Why am I telling you this? Because it's so easy to sit here through some of these sermons and say, oh yeah, I know who this is referring to. I know who this is referring to. I know who this is referring to. We are wealthy. We are the wealthy. By God's grace, I've been able to travel the world and see poverty in all kinds of different lands. I've tasted poverty in the barrios in Dominican. Tasted it. I've looked poverty in the eyes in Haiti. I've smelled poverty in little huts in Ecuador where their animals are living with them in this Little hut on a dollar a day. I've shaken hands with poverty in a Nicaraguan jungle and even hugged poverty in a Mexican village. Never from one of those trips have I come back and complained about anything I have 
or things I think I should have. In fact, when I come back from those trips, my life is so impacted. I need to go more often. My life is so impacted. I usually come back thinking, man, I am the stinking rich of the world, and I'm so ungrateful, and I'm so preoccupied with money. What's wrong with my heart, oh God? He's not looking down on us for being born in Canada and being blessed with a lot of things. That's God's grace to us. But I want to ensure that we don't make it our all and that we use what we do have for Christ and for his kingdom. He's blessed us to bless others, not to take his place, but that we might be used to point others to his glorious grace. Let me ask you this. How do you know if your heart is held hostage to money? Probably most of us are sitting here going like, yeah, I can see a little bit of that. How do you know if your heart is really held hostage to your money and your possessions and the things that you think you don't hold so dear, but maybe you do? Here's a little test I did in my heart, and I've shared some of these things with you before in previous sermons. Let me me remind you of them, but here's a little test that I did in my heart this past week, and I think you'll be as astonished as I was as I really asked God to check the reality of my heart and, and see where I really stand with this whole thing of money and possessions. How do I know if my heart is held hostage to money? Here's the first thing. I'm money focused. I'm money focused. I can't go a day without thinking about my money. I can't go a, a day without checking my bank account or my investment portfolios. My money dominates my life. I, I talk about it all the time. I, I bring about it up in conversations. Actually, my wife and I, or my husband and I, or my friends, we argue about money more than anything else. Money just seems to be what really dominates me. In fact, the days I see my investments going up, I'm high as a kite. The day I see them going down, I'm can't dig myself out of the pit. Does money dominate your life? Some people know their bank statements better than they know their Bibles. Some people talk to their investors more than they talk to Jesus. I'm not saying it's to condemn you. I'm just trying to help you get the weight of this text because if this is you, you could be in danger of having everything here on earth and missing out on the kingdom of God. So I tell you this in love. I'm asking you to check your heart as I check my heart. Here's the next thing. We're money hungry. We're just never satisfied. No matter how big the raise is or how significant the tax return is, it's just never quite enough. And when God does bless us, our, our living style seems to go up a little bit more. Our living, our living style seems to go up a little bit more. And then we just seem to can't quite get enough. It's like a salad. You're always seeming a little bit hungry eating salad every day for lunch. Always seeming hungry like a dog chasing his tail. We just quite can't, quite can't, quite can't. Spurgeon that said this, Spurgeon said this, if you're not content with what you do have, you'll never be satisfied if it were doubled. Beware if you have the thoughts, if I just had a little more, I shall be very satisfied. Money hungry. What about a money hoarder? Love seeing it come in. Hate seeing it go out. No, 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 it's not that. I'm just very wise and I'm a good steward. And I'm just a saver. Really a disguise for the fact that I just want to hoard my money. So when it comes to giving to me and all the things that I need, no problem. But when it comes to others, even Christmas and birthday and having people over, meeting other people's needs, oh man, that is, that's a little bit cramping my style and it, it makes my heart race and my fingers go numb when I see it going out the door. What about this, a money flaunter? Love letting others know that you're doing pretty well and flashing the color of bills in your pocket and making sure you're the one at the front paying for the bill and, and you're making sure everybody else around knows what you have and, and how successful you are and just want that prestige, want that power, want that affirmation and respect. Is that where you are at? Are you putting a little too much hope in your money? 
What about this? Being a money chaser. Doing whatever it takes to get just a little bit more money. And I'll cut corners, no problem. As long as no one knows. As long as I'm technically not breaking the rules. Or, you know, I, people know you and they know you as a, a businessman that, or a businesswoman or maybe just a regular person that, that always looking for the, the shortcut and, and rip people off or cheating the system. You a money chaser? Whatever it takes. Even lying on government forms and exaggerating my needs so that others can maybe pad my pockets a little bit. Treat people as a way to get more in my pockets. It's amazing. I saw this survey, and um, I know I've shared this with you before, but it, I just couldn't shake it on this sermon. The survey of a few years ago, of, uh, they did this in, on, a, on a poll saying, what would you do for $10 million? What would you do for $10 million? Just people, random people on the street. Amazing. Listen to this. 3% of the people on the street said for $10 million, they would put their kids up for adoption. What? 16% said they would leave their spouse. 25% said that they would abandon their family forever. 23% said they'd become a prostitute for a week. No, no, money's not my God. Really? Second survey was given a few weeks later, dropping the amount to 1 million. 65% said they'd live on a deserted island for a year. 30% said that they would, they would go to jail for a crime, spent six months in jail for a crime they didn't commit. And Ray Comfort did this on the street, the evangelist, and asked people what they'd do for a couple million bucks. And people would even, many people said that they would even poison someone they didn't know for a couple million dollars. You don't believe that money is one of the gods of our age? True answers. Where's your heart when it comes to money? Now, I'm not saying, get this, I'm not saying if you have money, you're evil, you're not going to heaven, you can't follow Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you can't invest in your, invest your money or, or the Bible actually teaches that you can invest your money. It's wise to invest your money and store up in seasons of plenty money so that when seasons of, of struggle come, that that's a wise thing to do. It's, it, it, the, the Bible teaches that um, we can hard, produce hard work and pursue success, uh, so I'm not saying any of those things. Don't get me wrong. It's not like if you have, if you have money, you're not going to heaven. If you're, if you're poor, then it shows you're spiritual. That's not it. It's our attitude towards money, especially in relationship to God and others. Is money becoming your comfort and your security and your identity? Just asking to check your heart. Just asking today to check your heart. God first, blessing others second, taking care of myself third is the proper order of how God wants us to pursue him with our money, sharing with others and letting others use our possessions. That's what God has ordained for us, that people can see that, that we're not holding on to this stuff. We have nothing to hold on to. We've got Jesus and he's all we need to hold on to. There's more to life than money. The world needs to see that. I need to be convicted and challenged in this as much as you do. But it's a truth we cannot ignore. The way we view our money is a direct correlation to how we view Jesus Christ. He blesses us to bless others and expand the kingdom of God. Know this, brothers and sisters, money cannot satisfy. Winning the lottery will never get you to where you ultimately long to be. That big inheritance you're waiting for will never be quite what you thought it was going to be when it comes to the reality of your soul. Getting that job promotion or finding your financial freedom early is never fully going to 
to free you. It's never going to free you to live the life that God truly intended you to live. Your money will never make you holy. Your money will never make you right before God. Your money can never buy your way into heaven. Money is simply a commodity that God uses in our lives to, to show his glory to the world around us. Don't just nod in agreement with me. How is this then going to change the way that I view my money this week? Do I need to relook at my budget and see what's coming in, what's going to me, and what needs to go out the door? Especially in COVID-19. There's people struggling out there, and our church has been proactive in trying to find them and, and reach out to them. People in our church, people outside our church. How about as a church we do this together in your own neighborhoods, in your own spheres of influence, your coworkers and your friends, and, and really show people that, man, I am going to be used of God with what God has given me, and I'm going to bless you with the blessing of God as we live our lives together. Money is not the be only end all. Jesus is. Matthew 16, verse 26, for what will it profit a man or woman if he gains a whole world that forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Think deeply about these truths that Jesus said to us in his gospels. Choose to disregard this. You're not disregarding me. We're disregarding the one who gave his life for us. Here's the last thing that you have to know when you choose Jesus, we find a blessing times a hundred. It's not just to give up, it's God promises great blessings if we choose to, to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow Jesus, which we learned a few weeks ago, and really follow Jesus. He promises to bless us, not just a little bit of blessing, but a hundredfold blessing. Look at what it says here in uh, verse 28. Peter began to say to him, notice Peter being the spokesperson again. Good old Pete, eh? Good old Pete. I got this one, boys. Got this one, boys. He's almost bragging. He's like, see, Jesus, we've left everything and followed you. This punk can't do it, but we have left everything and followed you. It's kind of like, high five, boys. High five. Like, we're super spiritual now. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. Oh, Peter. Stop being like me. Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands and persecu with, with persecutions, notice that, with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We're so spiritual, Jesus, Peter is saying. And Jesus is saying, just hold on, Peter. Hold on, Peter. I'm glad you're doing that. But you have to also know this, that I promise to bless those who will follow me. And, and some people take this out of context. They take this, these verses to mean that if you give to Jesus, he's going to bless you back in this life with everything you've given him. Let me contend for you that this verse does not mean that. This isn't a prosperity gospel verse. This isn't a verse that tells you that when you give this, you will get exactly back and more in return. It's not a rate of return on investment kind of verse. This is actually telling you that when you give up and truly authentically follow Jesus, not for what he can give you materially, but for what he gives you with himself and, and spiritually, then you will receive blessing. And the blessing you will receive, it says here in this earth, I know it says that in this earth, is the blessing of being added to the family of God. It's the blessing of being now being now welcomed into the people's houses in God. And so your, your possessions do multiply as God's people share all their possessions with people. We then do have an abundant inheritance in the family of God on this earth, but ultimately forevermore. How do I know that it's talking about forevermore and not here? Notice the one, the one word that's left out of the first and second list here. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's none who's left his house or his brothers or his sisters or mother or father 
or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, not receive a hundredfold, a hundred times, now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and, uh-oh, where's fathers? Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and, where's fathers? God is our father. He's the one in the next life that's going to be our father. The ultimate carer of our souls and watch, the one who watches over our lives. And in this life, what he promises us when we join the family of God, we're going to have more brothers and sisters and family members than we could ever begin to imagine. Think of the worldwide church of God for all those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. Think of all the possessions they have. We're all in this together. We share openly together. And in this life, we can be assured of that plus persecutions. It's going to get hard. But there's going to be blessing in that because in persecutions, it actually shows that we're identifying with Jesus Christ. We find an intimacy with Jesus we'd never find anywhere else. And so our blessing becomes the intimacy with Jesus and the family of God. And then that's just a microcosm of what it's going to be in heaven when we finally get there and where Jesus personally, we see his face, we, we touch his hands, we feel his embrace, we hear his voice, and then we get to share eternity with the, all the truly saved in Jesus Christ forever and ever and ever. I want to yell amen, but I know I can't, I don't really hear you yell amen. Just say in your houses, amen, amen. And so God's showing us, Jesus is showing us here that yes, we do receive, but a different kind of blessing, a better kind of blessing, and the ultimate blessing is when we are going to be with him in glory. Nothing on this earth can compare to that. We'd scrap everything, as Paul says. Take everything on this earth. It's worthless compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. He is the ultimate treasure and blessing, and so money then becomes far down the chain as we live our lives for the glory of King Jesus. And many who are first in this world, those who we think are like, man, they have it all made. They have the easy life. They're, they're cruising. We'll be last when it comes to eternal things. And the last will be first. Apply these messages. Live these messages. Truly surrender your life. Allow Jesus to be king over not just your compartments of your heart, but your whole heart, including your bank account and your wallet. And you will not find blessings just in this life. You will find eternal life now and forevermore. I know it's another straight shooter, but it's a good one. I need it. You need it. God wanted us to hear it today as it's in the text. Let's together turn our eyes upon Jesus Look full at his wonderful face and let the things of earth grow strangely dim. You will not be disappointed. You'll find more life than you've ever known you could have. You'll find more joy and more hope and more faith and more happiness than the rest of the world combined. If you bow before Jesus, let him be your salvation and let him be your provider. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this text. God, I pray today that you'd apply this to our hearts as we see fit. God, I pray that nothing would be taken out of this that wasn't intended, but instead, oh God, may the treasure of Jesus grow in our hearts. May we see our money for what it really is. May we understand that it can be a trap, and may we understand the good and the blessing we can do with it as well. And Father, everyone that's watching this video, Father, I pray that we'd be able to worship you today. We'd be able to worship you this week by giving you back everything that we are and all that we have that you might use it to point people to Jesus Christ and grow your kingdom here on earth. Thank you, Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.